Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones. And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure. And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Hello and welcome to episode 22. This time we head back into gothic territory with a tale of cruelty and revenge set during the Franco-Prussian War, the Lord of Chateau Noir. And here's Paul to introduce the story. In late 1870, the Franco-Prussian War entered its second phase. The empire of Napoleon III has been defeated and the French have declared a third republic and refused to capitulate to the Prussians. Paris is besieged and northern France remains a battleground. In the occupied Norman town of Les Andelys, Prussian sentries are regularly found dead, while foraging parties and patrols have disappeared. The nearby Chateau Noir seems to be central to these events, and Captain Baumgarten is sent to investigate. Mm-hmm. So the story was written in spring 1894, but as we'll see, it has many connections back to Conan Doyle's school days at Stonyhurst, the Jesuit college just outside Preston in northwest of England. And when the Franco-Prussian War broke out in July 1870, Conan Doyle was in his first year at the school and uh, recorded the incident in a letter to his mother, um, saying that the news of the war was so momentous that it had, quote, made a ripple even in our secluded backwater. And Conan Doyle was naturally predisposed to taking the French side, partly because of his mother's love of the French language and literature, but also uh, because Stonyhurst was, of course, a Catholic college and supported Catholic France over the Protestant uh, Prussia. And Owen Dudley Edwards has written about the profound influence of one of the Stonyhurst tutors and priests, Father Cassidy, on the schoolboys, and suggested that Cassidy might have made much of the cruelty of the Prussians towards the demoralised and shattered French population. Um, Though, of course, a lot less would have been said about the siege of Paris and the Commune and its anti-clerical elements. And certainly Conan Doyle was anxious about the plight of the French because in another letter he wrote, I'm so sorry for poor old France, which, though I don't hear very much war news, still is I hear getting beaten. The most frightful prophecies are going about. About her, I hope they are all lies. Um, But um, Conan Doyle was also hoping that Britain might be brought into the conflict and recalling the events many years later, he noted that uh, in spite of a large infusion of foreigners and some disaffected Irish, we, the schoolboys, were a patriotic crowd and our little pulse beat time with the heart of the nation. But um, Britain wasn't pulled into the conflict, but it wasn't long before Conan Doyle himself was on the continent uh, because five years later he studied in Felkirk in Austria at another Jesuit school. And it's there that he developed a sympathy for the peoples of Germany and Central Europe. Uh, and it's this love of both the French and the German that is something that colours Um, the Lord of Chateau Noir. As for the writing of the story, this was one of several occasional articles by 
um, Conan Doyle for The Strand after the demise of Sherlock Holmes. And he may well have been inspired by reading Maupassant, as we'll come on to in a little bit. But whatever the inspiration, we have a letter from Conan Doyle to his mother dated the 2nd of May, 1894, in which he writes, I wrote a fine story, The Lord of Chateau Noir, a real clinker. I sold it to an American for £150. It will appear in the Strand. Also an article on ski, which is adorned with photos of my own taking. Um, and it was, it did appear in the uh, UK in the Strand magazine in July 1894, uh, with illustrations by William B. Wallen, the, the great Gerard illustrator. And it was um, published alongside An Alpine Pass on Ski, which was Conan Doyle's article of his trip to Switzerland in March 1894, around the time that, that's, that the, uh, the story was, was written. And the story was indeed widely circulated in the American newspapers in, in July of 1894, and eventually collected uh, in the UK in the, in the Green Flag and other stories of war and sport in 1900. And the story was indeed uh, very fondly remembered, at least by one significant figure in Conan Doyle's life, uh, Herbert Greenhouse Smith, the editor of The Strand. And in 1930, uh, Greenhouse Smith wrote an obituary and, and a defence, to some extent, of Conan Doyle's life and work and said, I have even seen him alluded to as, quote, a writer of stories for boys. To me and to others like me, this opinion seems to be, not to put too fine a point on it, the last word in nonsense. To my way of thinking, such stories as The Leather Funnel or The Lord of Chateau Noir have never been excelled by any writer in the world. No, not by Kipling or Stevenson or Maupassant or Anatole France. Stories for boys indeed, foe. And uh, and even the great Owen Dudley Edwards singles this story out for praise, describing it as one of the very greatest pieces of historical fiction Conan Doyle ever wrote, a dark, symbolic narrative of ancient aristocratic leadership of guerrilla activity against the Germans. So before we get too far into it, let's get a bit of background on, on the Franco-Prussian War itself. Yeah, the, um, the war had been brewing for quite some time, really. Um, it, it's... It all came about as, as essentially part of uh, Otto von Bismarck's um, plan for for a, for a greater Germany and for Germany to become the uh, the, the, the dominant nation um, within Europe. Even though in the mid nineteenth century Germany hadn't yet united, it was a number of of, of disparate mm. states. Um, Bismarck's ambition was to um, to to essentially unify Germany with Prussia as the leading state of Germany. Um, and to this end, he had provoked wars with, with Denmark in the 1860s and Austria, who up to that point were the leading German-speaking nation in Europe. Uh, provoked wars with both of those, won them both. Um, and the next target was was France. Um, and um, throughout the, um, the the summer of 18, the early spring and summer of 1870, um, Bismarck was provoking the French, um, and the flashpoint came over the uh, the succession to the Spanish throne, uh, where the French objected to the, um, the, the 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 Prussian idea of a of a Hohenzollern mm. uh, princeling to become king of Spain, and this was was um, exaggerated, um, and in the end uh, there, there was a, a, a telegram mm -hmm. uh, known as the Ems telegram, which which Bismarck apparently doctored in such a way to become the, the, the language was very offensive to the French um, and Napoleon III and uh, the, the French Second Empire uh, ended up declaring war on Prussia in, in July 1870. Um, the Prussians moved into France. Uh, there were a series of battles 
um, throughout July and August of, of 1870, most of which the Prussians won. Mm. Um, um, it culminated in um, September the 2nd, 1870, with the surrender of the French Imperial Army at uh, Sedan and the collapse of the French Second Empire. Mm. Um, this was replaced by the Third Republic, mm -hmm. and France kept fighting. Mm. Um, so the Prussians then had to, um, to to keep their war machine moving. Uh, they besieged Paris and moved their armies further west and and north in France. And uh, a number of, of, of battles and occupations carried on throughout this period. Um, one of the areas they'd moved into was was Normandy. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a town in Normandy called Les Andalies, which is where this story is set. Uh, and it had personal connections to the Doyle family. Yeah, it did. And and Alexis Barkwan at the Conan Doyle Encyclopedia has done a really great piece of work in digging through the, the family connections here. In autumn 1870, Conan Doyle's sister, Annette, was educated at Saint-Clotilde, a boarding school for girls in Les Andalies. And um, his sister Lottie also went to the same school about a decade later. And it may be that his mother Mary Doyle was educated there too. It's a bit ambiguous um, as, to, as to whether or not she studied there. Um, Conan Doyle himself visited the town several times, being hosted by Madame Ricard. And in 1959, on what would have been Conan Doyle's 100th birthday, she was interviewed. And thanks to Alexis, we have... Um, both the interview and a translation, which you can find at the Conan Doyle uh, Encyclopedia. We'll put a, a link in the show notes. But Les Antilles gets referenced in three other Conan Doyle tales. There's a Seigneur d'Antilles in The White Company, um, Saint-Marie, who is uh, a noble in The Refugees, is also Seigneur of the Chateau d'Antilles, and uh, probably most significantly, the um, the Hussar of Conflona camped just outside Andalus in The Marriage of the Brigadier, uh, which is the story in which Gerard narrowly escapes being impaled on the horns of a rampaging bull. Yeah, so it's it's um, it's particularly interesting that that Annette was was in the town of Les Andalus during the period of of, of German occupation, um, and she actually wrote uh, letters to to her parents, uh, Charles and Mary Doyle. Um, from Les Andalies during this period, and they published extracts from these letters uh, anonymously um, in in the Scotsman, um, a kind of voice from within France uh, during the war kind mm. of thing. Annette unfortunately died young uh, in 1890, um, but it, it's interesting to speculate as to whether Arthur got a chance to talk to her about what what it was like mm. um living in france um during the during the war and the occupation uh, of this period if he had access to the full letters mm. um that she'd written to to their parents uh, and used this um as as research material to get the atmosphere right uh, for, for for the story yes and he's and we know he was very interested in the history of the war because he owned a copy of um castle's illustrated history of the war as well yeah, it, it, we we know this um, from from a letter that he wrote to his mother in in 1875, uh, talking about uh, he, he has a gift for his sisters. Uh, he says, "Tell Lottie and Connie I have a present for them. It is a lot of numbers of Castle's illustrated history of the war, i.e., the Franco-Prussian War." Mm -hmm. 
the pictures ought to amuse them. Um, and <laughs> Castle's illustrated history of the war, as, as it suggests, is, is, it is this, this wonderful two-volume compendium full of, full of wonderful line drawings that, that, that really um, that really atmospheric pictures uh, of, of, of the period. And, um, but it, it does seem a, a curious present to, to give to a, a couple of young girls. <laughs> well, he might have been warning them that they were going to study there any time <laughs> soon, I suppose. <laughs> or, yeah. or, or perhaps he, he, you know, he, he said this is, this is what a, a net was living through, or yeah. some, something like that. And, and of course, Lottie was herself going on to to study in in Les Andelis later. Yeah, yeah. The the scans are fantastic actually. There are some mm. I'll put some of the links into the show notes because the the illustrations from that work are are really fantastic. And the historical context of this story is very specifically this second phase of the Franco-Prussian War. So what was distinct and, and different about that? Well what what you've got in the the the, the second phase is is you've you've got a, a a change of government in France into a republican government and a more or a different sort of strident nationalist government to the to the imperial government um when the war broke out um the the, the french army was essentially made for four different elements the main element of which was 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 the regular army the metropolitan army um which which had been involved in the um the the, the wars which which the second empire had fought in in the 1850s and onwards um so i'm thinking of, of things like the crimean war mm. or the uh, the wars in italy in 1859 um and and the um the, the Mexican adventure of the 1860s as well, the uh, colonial adventure. Uh, they, they were the, you know, the, 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 the Imperial Army, the regular army was, was, was the backbone. And that was backed up by the, the Armée d'Afrique, uh, which was the, the army which had been raised uh, after France's uh, invasion and occupation of, of Algeria and areas of, of, of North Africa. Mm. Uh, so that element you've also got, um, as well as French troops, you've, you, you've got North African troops um, like the, the, the Zouaves and the, the Turcos, the Tireur Algerien, the Spice, mm. all, all these sort of units. Um, this is the army that is eventually defeated at Sedan in September 1870 and largely taken into captivity so a whole swathe of french troops are taken out uh, by that but the, the regular army had been backed up by the the the, the garde mobile um which tended to consist of of men of fighting age who who hadn't actually been conscripted and they were used for things like garrison duty fortress duty that sort of thing um and then after them, the Garde Nationale, uh, which has its roots back in the, the early days of the, the, the French Revolution mm. in the 1790s, and the, the old Levé en, en masse, um, and was, was largely originally a middle-class um, sort of backup army, but um, there were all sorts of elements made that up, and the regular army regarded that with a degree of contempt. And then finally, you've got the, uh, the group known as the Front Tireur, who were... It really start out with with local rifle volunteers, uh, and the plan for the frontiers was to use them for hit and run, uh, partisan operations, that sort of thing. Um, the only um, units of, of French soldiers who actually got into Germany in the Franco-Prussian War were a, a small unit of frontiers oh. who created a, a small degree of chaos and stole some German pontoon boats and brought them back <laughs> to France. Um, but the the, the frontiers later got a got a, a very bad name um because once as is the case with these things once war breaks out uh, a certain degree of discipline is lost yeah, yeah. um and it, it wasn't helped 
um, by the more sort of um, bloodthirsty, fulminating politicians who mm. love to stir this this kind of thing. Um, Michael Howard, in his history of the uh, the, the Franco-Prussian War, um, mentions one in particular. He, he says, at Tours, Francois Steenak has suggested the formation of small groups which will cut off convoys, harass the enemy, and hang from trees all the enemies they can take, well and truly by the neck, after having mutilated them. In short, I suggest the type of war which the Spaniards waged against us under the First Empire and the Mexicans under the Second. So you've got all this kind of bloodthirsty yeah. rhetoric is 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 going on. Um, uh, and it, it's interesting as well, this kind of throwback to the original Napoleonic Wars hangs over this, interestingly, um, and and German memories and French memories of, the, of that war um, become involved. Um, and, and Howard notes a conversation between the French politician Jules Favre and uh, Otto von Bismarck. Bismarck says of these franc tireurs, we are hunting them down pitilessly, Bismarck told Jules Favre. They are not soldiers, we are treating them as murderers. And when Favre pointed out that the German people had done the same in the wars of liberation, i.e. The, the, the wars against Napoleon, mm. uh, 1813 and 1814, um, Bismarck replied unanswerably, that is quite true, but our trees still bear the marks where your generals hanged our people on them. So once this sort of war starts and this sort of rhetoric, things get a bit out of, out of hand. Um, uh, uh, and it's interesting from the, the Castle's history of the war between France and Germany, the, the one that Arthur Conan Doyle gave to his sisters. Um, there's, there's a comment on that in, in, on the Germans in the northeast in Picardy and Normandy. It is said that the Prussians discovered in a wood near Dieppe the body of one of their comrades tied by his heels to the branch of a tree with his eyes gouged out and his nose and ears cut off. Mm. So these sort of stories are doing the rounds quite, quite definitely. Um, but the, the, the writer of the castle's history also says, of the conduct of the Prussians themselves in Normandy, various accounts are given, but on the whole, it seems probable that they behaved with no greater rigor than military exigencies required. So the, the, there is a balanced view also being given. Um, but it's, this, this is the background of the story. Conan Doyle's read up on all of this this material. And of course, he, he's also at this time very steeped in the original Napoleonic Wars and, and interested in the Peninsula War and the Guerrilla War that went on there. Um, and he throws this all into this this story, The Lord of the Chateau Noir, and, mm -hmm. and, and turns it into a, 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 a very interesting historical Gothic story. And he, the, I hadn't realised until you were talking about the franc tireur that, that Conan Doyle would go on in later life to recommend um, volunteer rifle regiments uh, as a, yes, as a he, preparation for war. Possibly looking at the, the way the, the, the French had, had, had taken this idea. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure he wouldn't recommend outright <laughs> kind of partisan warfare turning into terrorist warfare. But certainly the idea of using riflemen, the, the original idea uh, of using riflemen to, to, to harass occupying troops and this sort of thing would 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 be very appealing to him yeah um and of, of course he'd been out in the in the or later he was out in the boer war where you know the the, the mounted rifleman was the king of battle mm. yeah and and the other that point you make about the interpretations of the the violence or the cruelty of the french side and of the german side is something that carries through right through to this to the present day it's still hotly debated by historians and the, of, of the period. I was reading an article that only came out four or five years ago for, by Bastian Sciana, 
which was looking at, you know, reviewing German behavior during the, 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 the Franco-Prussian War. Mm. And he was, you know, putting this in the context that, you know, there's been a strong, strong element of the historiography since the Second World War to sort of track back this idea of a, an innate German German militarism to earlier <laughs> earlier mm. uh, conflicts, which has been largely dismissed now. But what he concludes is that you know the the Franc-Tireur probably weren't quite as extensive as 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 we might think, and probably not quite as effective. But also the as much as there were um, incidents and there was a great deal of exaggeration on their side, the, the Germans were operating just as that quote indicates from Castle's history within the sort of bounds of what was fairly normal for a 19th century uh, army. Um, but it's been, but that is something that can, this whole issue of the cruelty on either side is something that carries all the way through to the literature um, as we're, uh, you know, as we're going to come on to and to see when we talk about Maupassant. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's as ever with this sort of warfare, it, it becomes propagandized. Mm. Um, stories become exaggerated, and and also when you unleash, uh, as quoting from the uh, the, the the politician Steinakers, when these sort of rather irresponsible politicians shout about unleashing this sort of warfare, they also encourage, as ever, the criminal elements mm. who who always go on the back of these these things and are out for themselves. You got this as well with the uh, the. the the Peninsula War, mm. where the the guerrillas, you get the genuine patriots, and then you you get people who who are in it for themselves, and they will also take advantage. Uh, but with the Franco-Prussian War, you, you you've got an extra level of complication because you've got something which is developing into a civil war. Yes, in Paris. So uh, almost in a way, the the the, the partisan war of the frontiers becomes overshadowed later on by the horrors that that happen in Paris. The, the the French unleash on each other, where, yeah. where the, the, the the conservative Versailles troops are unleashed on the commune in, in Paris, and just it becomes a bloodbath. That the Prussians just stand and, and they're, they're just spectators to, to to Frenchmen killing each other. Mm. So that whole thing overshadows the earlier stages of the Franco-Prussian War, and certainly in in, in a lot of the, the the French national memory, and and uh, still stirs up passions to this day. Yeah, yeah. Now, the violence that surrounds the Franco-Prussian War is something that we inevitably see feeding into the literature of the period. And, and probably the author most associated with the Franco-Prussian War is one with whom Conandor was very well acquainted, and that's Guy de Maupassant. Um, and Maupassant wrote a collection of short stories entitled Boule de Suif et autres Contes de la Guerre, or Dumpling and Other Stories of the War. The title one, Boule de Suif, is by far the most famous and quite possibly, you know, one of the best short stories written in any language. Um, it's a, it's an incredible piece of work. And it really concerns, you know, a cross-section of French society who are in a cab seeking to pass a Prussian roadblock. And uh, um, essentially the, the, the occupants sell out um, the most humane member who happens to be a prostitute. And, and essentially uh, she is she is forced to sleep with a Prussian officer so that they can get through and get on their way. And it's a very taut psychological study in this pressure cooker environment of the, of the cab, but also the, the, um, uh, the, the coaching house that they stay in overnight. And it's, uh, it's a really amazing piece of work. Um, but in this and other stories by Maupassant, um, he really paints the picture of the German soldiers, very negative view of the 
the German soldiers as you would expect, depicts them as dull, slow-witted, um, morally dubious, and and in the case of Bulderswief, you know, sexual predators as well. And that features in other stories as well. There are Mademoiselle Fifi about an effeminate German officer who abuses a Jewish prostitute um, who then kills him, and then two friends, which tackles tackles the subject in a in a different way, um, where two friends meet, debate um, the tragedy of the Franco-Prussian War before being captured and ultimately executed by the Prussians. And while Conan Doyle doesn't make any specific references to Boulder Suif or the wider collection in his letters, it's inconceivable that he wouldn't have read these tales, which were hugely popular and influential. We know he'd read an awful lot of um, Maupassant, presumably in the original French. Uh, in one letter to his mother, he refers to uh, Pierre et Jean, a work of 1888, saying that um, the preface is by far the best part of it. Um, the preface being a very famous essay entitled The Novel, Le Roman, in which Maupassant argues that there can't be a common definition of what a novel is. And he, he uses the examples of um, Don Quixote and Madame Bovary and The Three Musketeers, all of which were right up Conan Doyle Street. And, and Conan Doyle has this very you know complex relationship with Maupassant. It's fair to say that he was deeply in awe of him, but also desperately uncomfortable with some of the subject matter. And he he wrote an article that was later incorporated into Through the Magic Door, in which he wrote, uh, Maupassant, with all his faults of taste, was such a natural instinctive storyteller, so concise, so admirably balanced, with such a range of sympathies. Of the great masters of fiction, none, perhaps, combined high imagination with actual knowledge of life so fully as he. Some of his tales are, I grant, indefensible, but a French writer is to be judged by the standard of his own country, and it may at least be said of him that he is never coarse for the sake of coarseness, and that the humour or the drama of the situation is its excuse, if not its justification. Um, Hesketh Pearson puts it a bit more on the nose and says, you know, of course, Maupassant, being French, was obsessed with sex, while Doyle, being more English than the English, was obsessed with sport. Um, although he does make the nice connection that there is a Conan Doyle and Maupassant both passed through the Gemi Pass in Switzerland uh, at many years apart and actually hit on the same idea for a short story. And that Conan Doyle recounts that in, a, in an article for The Strand called Stranger Than Fiction. But Conan Doyle was at this time, you know, we, we know he was reading Maupassant around this time and the, he had very good reason for reading Maupassant and lots of other French writers. Yeah, the, uh, this, this time he was caught up in the controversy surrounding George Moore's novel, Esther Waters, um, which had been essentially banned from W.H. Smith stalls um, on on moral grounds. Doyle thought this was completely wrong, um, and he, he defended the, the, the novelist's right here. And, and Doyle was one that he would draw the line. Mm. Um, and th- this was... was one of his main points really there, there, there is a line to be drawn but there must also be a certain degree of artistic freedom mm. um, and and this possibly came from him being more familiar with with continental literature and particularly french literature than than a lot of his his british contemporaries mm. uh were and and i mean he himself would certainly draw a line at a certain point in in a letter to his mother uh, written about this time um he, he says about um 
that Zola and Maupassant and Gautier get beyond me. Um, mm-hmm. I, they cross a line at points that, that he, he thinks is, is, is going too far. He probably also just thinks, well, they are French, but that's not <laughs> what, what we should do. And, and if, if he felt that Moore had crossed the line with Esther Waters, he wouldn't have defended it. Mm. Um, so he, he's, uh, a, a, we have this, this popular image of Conan Doyle as, as being, you know, the sportsman, the, 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 the Scots Irishman who was more English than the English with his, mm-hmm. with his big uh, imperial moustache. And, and he has this, this sort of um, caricature of, of Doyle is accepted. And this, uh, his approach to, to this sort of literature shows that he was a far more, far more complex yeah. character and, and extremely well read. Yes, incredibly well read. Incredibly well read. The, the other thing I would I would bring in certainly in, in the context of, of, of our current discussion it, it, with with um, Lord of the Chateau Noir being set in Normandy that, that interestingly de Maupassant was a Norman writer. Mm. Um, and just to further what you were saying, Mark, there about about Doyle's opinion of de Maupassant in in Through the Magic Door, he does class de Maupassant as second only as master of the short story to Edgar Allan Poe, yes. which from Doyle is praise indeed. Yes, I mean, he singles out in particular Maupassant's um, The Hauler, which we'll, we'll undoubtedly come back to when we eventually cover The Parasite. I think the, the other thing we need to say about Doyle in, in this context as well is, is look at his own writings. And it does come back to um, the, 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 the quote that you gave earlier from, from Greenhouse Smith, uh, about how how Doyle is 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 not to be dismissed as simply a boy's writer. Uh, mm. Again, the the thing he took from reading uh, a lot of these French writers um, is is this sort of dark irony. Yes, um, and 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 moral dichotomy, uh, which comes into so many of his stories. And I'm thinking in particular of stories um, like Lord of the Chateau Noir, Case of Lady Sannox. Um, the retirement of Senior Lambert, mm, mm. and and also you you look at some of the Sherlock Holmes stories, where you've got this same sort of moral dichotomy and and, and dark irony going on in, in stories like uh, the, the the Speckled Band and the Abbey Grange, yeah, yeah. where there are there are serious issues of morality, mm. uh, which are looked at from a very left field perspective almost. Yeah. Yes, and there's almost an element to which Conan Doyle is playing against. Well, what we would now think as sort of genre norms, and I was thinking about this when reading Chateau Noir again. In that, without giving away the ending at this stage, you know, you, you, it doesn't play out the way that you would expect a gothic telling of this story to play out. Um, I mean, the, the, the ending is interesting in that it, 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 there's, there's, there's no real close. You don't, you don't know. What, it, it's, it's almost open for a sequel. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, so we've got the influence there of. Uh, French literature, but we've also got the sort of long shadow of Gothic literature or, or, or literature that's very much in in that sort of that sort of vein. Yeah. So um, again, at the, the time this story has been been written, uh, just just to come back briefly to the the, the French element, there's um, a, a certain style of of, of story um, known as the Conte Cruel, which mm. aren't necessarily gothic but are, are dark and 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 ironic tales and that the master of this was was Villiers de Liladon. um but you've also got in Lord of the Chateau Noir that sort of element but mixed together with a more traditional gothic element mm. 
the story itself, when when uh, when Captain Baumgarten takes his patrol to investigate the, the I mean the Chateau Noir mm-hmm. straight away, the the, <laughs> the the name of the chateau gives you a clue. Um, they're going through driving rain it, it, towards this this dark chateau. Um, and, and when when they get in there, they, there's um, it's it's deserted. It, you know, it, this is this is classic horror movie stuff mm. almost. Walking into this this deserted medieval chateau, um, and and the, the language used within it. When when Baumgarten is sat on his own in the dining room, um, he sat within a small circle of brilliant light, but outside that circle, things were vague and shadowy in the old dining hall. The sides were oak panelled and two were heavy with faded tapestry across which huntsmen and dogs and stags were still dimly streaming. Above the fireplace were rows of heraldic shields with the blazonings of the family and of its alliances, the fatal saltire cross breaking out on each of them. And then there's also the, 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 the paintings, mm. paintings of four of the ancestors, hawk-nosed characters were staring at him. Um, and then we find out that the walls are hollow and there are passages within and he's mm. being watched. All this, it's, it's, it's classic Gothic stuff. Yeah. And there's more than a hint, I think, of um, a bit of Hound of the Baskervilles foreshadowing in there as well with the, the, the portraits on the wall. This lovely sequence where... Baumgarten observes these four paintings mm. and says they're, um, uh, the men are so like each other that only the dress could distinguish the crusader from the cavalier of the frond. Mm. And then suddenly a slight noise brought him to his feet. For an instant it seemed to his dazed senses that one of the pictures opposite had walked from its frame. I think it's just fantastic, isn't it? Oh yeah, he's, he's, he's a master of the Gothic. Yeah, and 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 you're right. This is a horror, this is a... Um, this is a haunted house, isn't it? This is a yeah. this is a, a, a horror horror location par excellence. Mm. And this setting feels a lot more uh, medieval than it does uh, eighteen seventy. Yeah, because you, you've got all this this background with the chateau and the portraits and the oak paneling, the tapestries. It's it's all 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 the trappings are absolutely perfect for setting up this this medieval atmosphere. Uh, and then suddenly we get the count appear in his in his gang mm. uh, and again you've got another element of, of of kind of gothic melodrama comes in in the, the at the start of the story you've got this idea of of, of the front and this this very modern type of partisan warfare going on mm. and then the count appears with 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 his his group and it, it suddenly there's another layer of medieval uh, medievalism comes in um because this, this is this is like a, the 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 lord of the manor and 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 Dois de seigneur and all the, this, this these mm. sort of elements come in and the his gang are his his feudal his, his feudal accomplices um and and there's there's something of of more almost of a a group of of medieval bandits Led by their their feudal lord, who who has lost his lands, um, and and is avenging his, his lands, and, and we find out he's also avenging the loss of his son. So it's mm. the loss of the line, um, as well. So all this 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 medievalism mixing in with 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 modernity, so that that Baumgarten in the end is 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 as as well as being physically maltreated by the the count, he's 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 mentally disorientated mm. by the by the, the the whole situation and 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 the what he thought was a, was a modern military patrol has suddenly almost stepped back in time that he, he's found himself in in what feels like the 13th or the 14th century and the way that this story plays out is that it's really um 
uh, it's very biblical. It's the it's an eye for an eye, quite literally, in the fact that Count Eustace um, hits Baumgarten across the face, inflicting a blow to the eye in recompense for the same blow that uh, his son received. And the story unfolds with um, the Count inflicting both cruelty and kindness in equal measure. It's the kindness as well as the cruelty that really makes this feel desperately unsettling as a, as a, as a short story. And, and makes it feel very modern mm. because you, you have this, this, this element where you, you, you're trying to read the count and you, you read him. Is he doing this in a way that he thinks is right in his mind with the kindness and the cruelty or the, the, the kindness in particular just feels cynical. Yeah. And and then the count just sends Baumgarten out into the night. Mm. It, it's it, 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 this, it just this is where the, the story to, feels to to me to to tie in really with 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 a lot of the the the, the French short stories uh, by people like Maupassant and and Delisle Adam, where where there are no outright moral judgments. No being being made um and it's almost up to you the reader to make of it what you will yeah very much so because i mean you you can you can see from baumgarten's point of view that his men are being essentially murdered in pretty horrible ways i mean they're getting the mm. saltire which we've already discovered is count mm. eustace's sign um cut into their foreheads you're all, you're sort of in the sympathetic position of being with baumgarten because like baumgarten you have no idea what's going to happen next um, but it's not that, you know, through the story that Count Eustace tells, we know that it's not all roses on the German side. Yeah, and and, and Baumgarten himself is very interesting in, in in that sense because he's he's portrayed as he's the consummate military professional, and he is portrayed as as essentially a decent man. Yes, who you have no doubt has not been involved in in perpetrating atrocities himself. And, and trying to place this story as as, as well it's, it's a bit of an interesting game in itself because we, we we've talked about it as as a kind of conte cruel it's a gothic story as well you could almost say it's 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 an entry in in in, in what you could class as a, as a rather small subgenre which is is, is gothic war stories mm. um and and Doyle himself was 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 quite a master of this. Uh, you, you can see this in a number of the uh, the, the Brigadier Gerard stories, uh, such as um, how the Brigadier held the king, how the Brigadier came to the castle of Gloom, uh, and how the Brigadier joined the USR of Conflans, mm. uh, all of which have some pretty horrific Gothic elements tied in within the the, the, the wider war mm. story. Um, you could also see this in in the Sherlock Holmes story, The Blanched Soldier. Uh, with the with the waking up in the leper hospital, which yeah, is yeah. you know if 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 that isn't a kind of moment of gothic horror, I don't know what is. Mm. Uh, right in the middle of the Boer War, he he's the, the, there aren't many people were writing in 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 this sort of field. The the other two I could think of off the top of my head would be uh, Ambrose Bierce and and P. C. Wren. Mm. Um, but doing these 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 gothic war stories within a very identifiable historical setting. Um, but taking them into into what is in some ways a, a, an unexpected direction. And just as we're wrapping up on The Lord of Chateau Noir, it's worth saying that uh, Conan Doyle did actually write another story about the Franco-Prussian War, which is in a very different vein, uh, which is called uh, A Shadow Before. And uh, that came out um, four years later, 1898. And it's a lovely little vignette about a, 
a trader, John Worlington Dodds, who's attending a horse auction in Ireland, and uh, deduces from the exorbitant prices being paid for horses that something is up. And uh, he rings his London partner and tells him to sell everything that's French and German uh, just hours before the news of the Franco-Prussian War is revealed. And it's a, it's a lovely little story. It has actually got a, a wonderful bit of, a classic bit of Conan Doyle set up at the beginning, uh, wonderfully concise, which is um, uh, the mighty debts of each great European power stand like so many columns of mercury, forever rising and falling to indicate the pressure upon each. He who can see far enough into the future to tell how that ever-varying column will stand tomorrow is the man who has fortune within his grasp. Um, it's a great little, great little story, and it's it's really it's really good fun. And um, Owen Dudley Edwards suggests that actually this has the feeling of something that could have been suggested to him by uh, one of those many Irish students who were studying with him at, at Stonyhurst as being a, a lived experience, but. Either way, it's a, it's, it's a very light-hearted piece. It was, it was collected with Chateau Noir in The Green Flag and Other Stories of War and Sport in 1900 and is largely forgotten now. But it's, a, it's an interesting companion piece to this, being of the same topic, but completely different take, completely different feel to it as well. And there's, there's a lovely little touch as well. And I don't know whether it's, it's deliberate or not, but with um, the fact that the... Uh, Part of the the the, the cause of the Franco-Prussian War was this this doctored M's telegram, mm. and the reason that that Dodds in the story can work out what's going on is is that the French representative and the German representative both get telegrams, oh, yes, and it's point. their it, their reaction to those telegrams tells him, yeah, essentially what's going on. Yeah, and you spotted a connection also with the uh, the Great Kleinplatz experiment. Yes, it's 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 Doyle doing his classic. Let's let's reuse names um, because in the in the great Kleinplatz experiment, you you've got Professor Baumgarten, um, and in this story we have Captain Baumgarten, uh, and we also have um, Baumgarten, Captain Baum, Baumgarten's superior officer, Colonel von Gramm, who is suspiciously close to the Count von Kram, which is of course the King of Bohemia's alias in uh, Scandal in Bohemia. <laughs> Uh, and before we close, um, I feel that I, I, I must um, make a, 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 an announcement here about uh, Mark's recent uh, investiture into the Baker Street Irregulars of uh, New York. <laughs> Thank you very as, much. As Peter Jones, um, <laughs> who Holmes tells us is an imbecile in his profession, but Mark is most certainly not an imbecile, but he may be as tenacious as a bulldog. <laughs> or indeed a lobster. Or a lobster. But, uh, congratulations, Mark. Well oh, thank done. you it very is, much. It is an, indeed an honour and well-deserved. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Paul. Thank you. <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of this podcast. Um, we hope you've enjoyed it. We've got uh, show notes, as ever, on the website. Um, if you're interested in, in supporting the podcast, then please consider becoming a Patreon supporter, and there will be information about that. So, Paul, what have we got on the podcast next time? Well... I've already mentioned it in, in this podcast. It's his um, personality swap story set in the world of, of, of German students, the great Kleinplatz experiment. Very good. Well, that really is a change of pace and tone. Um, but we look forward to doing that next time. So until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye.
And next time, we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> we haven't got a clue. <laughs> okay. 